Hello, welcome back to another episode of the British Food History Podcast. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery. Now, I'm not going to waffle on today because there's a fantastic episode coming up with Susan Flavin and Mark Meltonville talking about a very exciting and very large project. At least, well, one bit of it. Susan is leading a project called Food Cult. And this is according to the website. It's a five-year project funded by the European Research Council. This project brings together history, archaeology, science and information technology to explore the diet and food ways of diverse communities in early modern Ireland. It will serve as a model for future comparative and interdisciplinary work in the field of historical food studies. That's quite a name. One aspect of it was to recreate early modern beer from the late 16th century. This is where Mark Meltonville comes in because he's an expert in historical brewing, amongst many other things. And he teamed up with Susan and Food Cult to try and bring it back to life. And my goodness, what lengths they went to to try and do this. They've also written a very easy to read paper on it. And the links to that is in the show notes, along with anything else that's mentioned in today's episode. Before we begin, remember, I'll be doing a postbag edition at the end of the series. So if you've got any questions, comments, queries about this episode or any episode so far, I want to hear from you. Email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or send me a DM on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram, doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. I'll be posting about this on social media, of course, so leave a comment beneath it if you like. Or, how about leaving a post on the new British Food of History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. And a big thanks to everyone for continuing to support the podcast. If you haven't already, please rate it and leave a review. Each one really helps. Okay, let's get started. I talked to Susan and Mark about the Food Cult Project, the aims of the beer project specifically, misconceptions about beer and beer drinking in the past, when beer becomes porridge, how to source 16th century ingredients, and of course, what the beer tasted like. By the way, Susan and Mark mentioned Charlie a few times, and that's Charlie Taverner, who came on the podcast last season to talk about street food. It was he who told me about this project, so a big thank you to you, Charlie, for bringing it to my attention. I'll be back at the end to let you know about the Easter eggs attached to this episode and how to become a £3 subscriber, if you wanna, as well as other news. But now, recreating 16th century beer with Susan Flavin and Mark Meltonville. Thank you very much, Susan and Mark, for joining me on the podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome you. Hi there. Hiya. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Very nice to meet you. Now, I'm talking to you today about early modern beer in Ireland, but which is quite specific, <laughs> but we like the specific uh, topics on this podcast. Before we start talking about it, this is actually part of a quite a large study. And I think before we kind of talk about the, the beer in question, um, I thought we could just talk a little bit about the project and what, what its aims are and how it's uh, been approached. 
So it's an interdisciplinary project funded by the European Research Council that looks at diet and food culture in early modern Ireland, so 16th and 17th century. But really it's, it's designed to sort of bring lots of disciplines together to help us better understand what people eat and how they think about food, but developing kind of a model to do that that can be used in other countries as well, really. So it's historians looking at documents, it's archaeologists mapping all of the you know artifacts and seeds and animal bone around the whole country to develop a picture of of diet and then bioarchaeologists looking at humans um human skeletons mm. and also at pots to look at the chemical um sort of the remaining chemical f- from fats in, in pots to look at cooking wow. and that, as well as this project then that recreates an actual food as well i mean i love this multidisciplinary approach to things you know people are quite um protective about their own little uh, sphere that they research in so it's nice to see a bit of um crossover and i guess mark is this where you kind of stepped stepped in uh yeah I, I came in as as an experimenter but i jumped on it exactly for what you said uh there isn't enough interdisciplinary work going on you forever hitting walls with people not even helping you but mm. telling you why you shouldn't be studying the thing that they're studying. So the moment someone wants to break down some of those barriers and realise that we all know a little bit and together we know a picture, uh, it's just fantastic. So yeah, I was straight in on that, finding out that it was the sort of thing I'd been banging on about for years. We can get so far with the historical documents. We have incredible records for a very limited number of you know big institutions or big houses that tell us in minute detail what people ate on every day of the week. But of course, they're, they're usually very atypical. So then if we work with archaeologists, we can then expand that to see you know what the what what they're finding in the ground and does that align or not align with what we know from from records or from how people described how they ate in that in that period too so it helps to, to kind of a much bigger much more holistic picture why have you chosen those two centuries or was it not a choice was it just kind of by, by nature that part of history by the resources that that you had or your particular interests I think it's probably the most exciting period for food. I mean, every historian thinks their period is the most exciting. But the 16th <laughs> century is, is the most exciting period for, for food historians because that's when everything changes, I suppose. You've got, you know, the discovery of the new world and lots of new foods coming in. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, Renaissance humanism and new ideas about how you should eat and, you know, moderating your diet or not. And you've got... So, new utensils, new ways of eating. You've got the religious reformation that completely changes patterns of how people eat. Um, fasting and feasting, it changes all those things. And um, and colonization, so people bringing their ways of eating to other countries and mm-hmm. becoming more aware and more critical of how other people eat. So it's a really very dynamic period. And of course, Ireland is, is very interesting from that point of view because everything's going on there. It's, you know, um, it's a big trading country, but it's also colonized at the same time. So everything is much more intense. Mm-hmm. And those things bubble up when things bubble up. Food is often at the fore there. So it's an interesting place to study, too. And has all, has all the um, work been contained within a particular area or a particular town or? No, it's the whole country. The whole really. country. So, so wow. we've, we've, we've mapped the archaeology now from around 200 sites and from from all different parts of the country so we're interested in looking at regional variation and social variation and things like that um so it's a big it's a big project so thinking about the the beer project from what i'm saying from your paper that was taken from a particular site wasn't it or at least your your main resource when it came to working out how how the beer was made i mean i've maybe just answered your question for you <laughs> what what was the main aim of of that beer project this project really did relate to dublin castle so we took an account book from dublin castle 
And again, it had a tremendous amount of information on when they brewed, how much they brewed with, how much they drank. But we didn't really think we could understand beer from that document alone. We needed to understand the brewing process and we needed to make it. But we focused on that site because it's very interesting in that we know how much they drank. We know this is what um, an elite institution is giving to workers as part of their part of their diet so it's a good way to understand that this sort of ordinary everyday consumption associated with work um, mm. so there were lots of reasons for for choosing it uh, mark you were interested in that site as well for other reasons i think uh, yeah i mean it, it, people often ask me if i'm talking without susan there you know why are you working on irish beer from dublin castle and that's because it was a bit of a melting pot uh, a lot of my work over the last uh, 20 years has been looking at the royal accounts for the Tudors, the um, palaces of Henry VII, Henry VIII, and then all the way up to Elizabeth. And this castle is very much connected with that because a vast proportion of the people there were people from England, possibly some of the brewers, along with local assistants, and um, a lot of the equipment was shipped over and Susan found all sorts of lists of items. So it was very much, again, interdisciplinary, this time inter-country in one century and looking for whether where the cultures might have clashed. I was really interested in, first of all, how you talk about the assumptions made about beer drinking in the past. Because certainly the way it's been sold in the past is that it's extremely important. It's basically liquid bread. Society is basically almost focused around the creation of this drink, which made dirty water safe, which I know isn't really true. (laughs) And was this living drink that people would consume almost, I always think of it as like a kind of like a kombucha, just this kind of living uh, population or community of different organisms. And people were having thousands and thousands of calories of low, low alcohol beer. And that was basically how the population was sustained. Again, that's another reason I came on board so quickly, because it looked like this was a really good way of focusing some of that myth busting mm. through the book, through Susan's work and on a minor part of the paper and so on. Because like so many who work on historic drinks, I've been to countless breweries and they stand there in one room and tell you that no one drank the water because it was bad. They drank beer. Then they move into the next room and they go, of course, to make good beer, you need good water. And you think, have you not just heard your sentence in the last room? And they'll, they'll be doing it. I'll probably visit a couple of uh, breweries this summer and they'll do exactly the same. And I'd been looking at historic brewing. I'd been working in America on colonial brews and earlier things in the 15th century, going right back to early medieval and on. And everything is about clean water mm-hmm. and how you need good water to brew. And people forget that a lot of early brews aren't boiled. So that the whole myth just disappears uh, that way. Although I, in the subsequent work I've done with, with for, for Susan's project, I've realised that they often boil the water unnecessarily, not because you have to boil it. It's because it's the only visual clue you have of how hot something's got. So almost all of my <laughs> all of my references, Tudor, earlier and through the 17th and 18th century, tell you to take a kettle of water, boil it, and then wait for it to cool down so you can pour it onto your grains. Because that's the only way you know where it, you've got a benchmark. It has boiled, so we mm-hmm. know it got to there. So once you see the bubbles, you can 
go back and for most brews right through the century, they tell you not to pour it on your grains until you can see your face in it. See, I love stuff like that. The steam comes <laughs> back down. Uh, and so this was really helping link all that work together and go, yeah, it's, it's the same there as I'm reading 200 years later, 300 years later, 300 years previous. So it was a really good opportunity to put a lot of these things to the test. I think if I was going to say anything about those myths, I suppose the first one is when there is a temptation, of course, straight away to think, oh, the you know Irish people are drinking beer, so that's a sign of anglicisation because of colonisation. But of course, beer is Dutch. That's really important to remember. You know, Ireland is very, very connected to European trade. Hops are coming in, they're being shipped in from England, but also from the low countries as well. So this is as much an indication of sort of Europeanization, the globalisation of taste as it is about, about anglicisation. Um, and second, in terms of those myths, yes, people drank beer because it was in humoral terms or in terms of how they understood how their bodies worked, it was seen as a very healthy drink. It was good for, for workers. It provided, as you say, liquid calories. It helped them to perspire. It was um, good at preventing obstructions and good for, for energy. Um, they, they People did drink um, water and they drank milk and other products too, but beer was, was particularly associated with towns and particularly with workers. Um, and it's the same in Ireland as it is throughout the rest of Europe in, in this period too. I was quite surprised at uh, the amount of oats used in the beer. I've only ever come across oat stout. <laughs> as you travel around Britain and Europe, the grains that can be grown there differ due to the soil conditions and humidity is one of the big problems. And so you get major barley producing areas, which is southern England, and as you go up England, so you get more uh, instances of rye and then oats. And mm. so you get oats in Ireland, and if you carry on across state across across Europe, you get differing forms of grains that suit the society better. They what they have availability. Beer is very much linked with trade. Beer and trade go together. So you're often having to purchase some of the ingredients. Susan mentioned the hops from the Low Countries, and before that, up into the Hanseatic League, people have to purchase barley. One of the I I don't know where where did the where the myth came from though that that you know th this idea everybody drank small beer yeah um, and that and that beer was two percent and this number is kind of bandied around as if it's fact but no one's ever really reproduced it and I and certainly bandied studied it, it so yeah. I think <laughs> someone said it was on a GCSE history course or something and it just seems to be taken as as fact but there's no evidence I mean small beer is is consumed. Um, but in the 16th century, most dietaries and the sort of received wisdom is that it's not suitable for workers. It's too weak. Um, you can give it to the to children or to the elderly or people that are sick. But workers need to have a good, a good quality, ordinary or strong beer for, for work. So it's not. Yeah, it's not really based on any on any fact just one on, on the oats um mm. there it's 50 percent oats the beer that we that we brewed which probably is more in line with sort of northern european beers at that at that time but I we see. did find um mark did find a, an english document by sir hugh platt um that shows that some english brewers were interested in high oat beers as well so i think the fashion for oats kind of waxes and wanes mm. as barley's become a more prominent in this in the middle ages there was a lot more oat beer and it becomes sort of less popular in the 16th century but then has another resurgence in the 17th century so i think the you know it's, it's not that ireland is an outlier it's just that fashions change for beers over time as well as what's available locally it sounds like oats could be a bit of a could be a bit of a pain though because they could turn into porridge which well, I think I, Mark, um, yeah. 
I know that because I made 45 gallons of porridge one day. <laughs> and that takes a lot of hiding, I can tell you. Mm. I think some of it still hasn't been found. No, um, <laughs> no the, the, the oats, again, it's the evidence is there. You just have to unpick it. And we were halfway through the week when we pulled another document out that specifically told you to lower your water temperature with oats. We'd been lucky to for two days, overdid it slightly by uh, affecting the gluten in there and turning it into porridge. There was another another problem that we had, not a problem, but a challenge, I suppose, was that um, we were interested in this from, Mark will attest to this, the craft perspective. So we, we, we wanted to brew, we wanted to follow the directions as best we could using authentic ingredients, um, authentic equipment, and, and arrive at exactly as close as we could to what, what was produced in those in those accounts. And that meant that when we came upon a stuck mash, which was very, <laughs> very, very depressing, um, <laughs> we didn't really know what to do because the scientists that we were working with called some colleagues at the at their brewing lab and said, well, what should we do to avoid a stuck mash the next time? And they said, oh, we'll add some enzymes because, of course, the scientists wanted to reproduce the same thing over and over again to get results <laughs> and have data. But we couldn't do that because they didn't do that in the 16th century. So we sort of had to figure out that we would, you know, make it, you know, see our face in the water, adjust the temperature depending on, you know, using size and using craft, and then test the, the temperature to see what it was like um, and use that as a guide moving forward. But we didn't want to deviate from the, the craft. I think, Mark, you'd agree that was one of the tensions all the time, wasn't it, between science and, and craft? It is everywhere that I work, and I've worked on historic projects all over the place. And if you're not careful, the panic sets in, and it is a bit of a panic because these things cost money. And someone rushes out and says exactly that. Let's get an enzyme. Oh, we need to put a lid on there. And I have very simple rules for the projects that I work on. The ingredients, once they enter the space, do not touch a piece of modern equipment until mm. they leave as the result. That, it sounds very simple, but it's very difficult to organise because when someone grabs a plastic bucket, you have to say, no, we can't just put it in there for tonight till we come back because it needs to go into an oak bucket because mm -hmm. any of these little tiny pieces of equipment may affect the outcome. So I have to be able to stand up at my lectures and say, yes, when the ingredients came into the room, they touched 16th century equipment until it was beer. Sure. Uh, at that point, you get a break. What, what I describe as a break point where it has to enter the modern world for whichever reason. And that break point is where you have to stop your experiment. And uh, in our case, it had to be bottled so it could go off for testing. What actually are the ingredients of a basic beer and how does one make it from those ingredients? Um, beer is a malted drink. So it takes a grain, and there are many grains across the planet. If that grain has been malted, and malting is the process of germinating the grain mm. so that that grain starts converting its own starches in the germination process to sugars, you then arrest that germination. That involves heating it up, basically killing the growing seed. That is now malt. So what that which had plenty of starch in now is mostly sugars, it's converted itself. Any grain that's been malted like that can be added to warm water. The water will extract the sugars and leave the grains behind. Different temperatures do it better or worse. We're, we were learning that. That liquid that comes off is a sweet, grainy drink. In the it's case very of sweet, beer. isn't it? I have tasted very, very it. Sweet. Um, mm. Approximately, because uh, at each stage we would take away, and I do this with all our projects, a small pot of each thing and that would go into the lab section to be tested 
So in, although one doesn't want the modern equipment coming in, your bits of your beer can go out and you go, oh, that's really sweet. How sweet is it? it average about 15% sugar. That's kind of sugar cane level, isn't it? Really, yeah, it's not so far it's off. Pretty sweet, and it mm. was drunk. These, these, these—they mm. uh, were drunk as a sweet malt drink, especially during harvest. If you chill that down, it's a really good, a uh, good drink. That wort, as it's called, uh, which is uh, the, uh, the 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 sugary water, uh, then has yeast added to it. Yeast, put simply eats sugar and poops out alcohol and carbon dioxide as it swims about <laughs> in the uh, in the mix. Uh, there are so many ways of describing how all that works, but that's basically it. That's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. It will stop working. Working is the word they use it. When the yeast runs out of food or the temperature gets too high, various other factors. But at a certain point, the yeast will stop eating the sugar. It will die, fall to the bottom. And then what you have now is a much less sweet but alcoholic brew. And all beers are a form of that. Everything else is playing around with flavours and strengths. The more sugar you give it, the stronger the potential alcohol. If you go up two heights, around a third, you've given it too much sugar and it can't live. And, and of course, in the, around the mid 16th century, the hops adds a, an, an extra level to yeah. that because you've got the you've got to boil it again with the with the hops afterwards. So you've got yeah, it's it, it's it, it, an extra chore, I guess. It takes longer to make beer than to make ale. Ale, yes. a- ales all have a bittering herb usually in them. In Britain, it's something called an ale cost or cost Mary, which was used before predominantly before hops uh across most of central europe it's a plant called bog myrtle but oh, yeah. hop, hops um hops become the thing to go to it's trade mm. a good hopped beer not only tastes nice but it travels well hops has a mildly antiseptic quality probably not that no one was looking for that initially but the hopped beers could be moved to another town Ale is beer without any hops in, yeah? Am I... Yeah, might as well be. <laughs> yeah, okay. For the purposes of today's discussion. It definitely is, yeah. Um, if you have <laughs> a, a hopped beer, not only is it a different taste, a bit like the Lager Revolution of the 70s, you know, a new taste turns up in your town, but it is able to travel. Hmm. And so it starts spreading along what we think of now as Upper Germany and across everywhere it goes. It's liked. The local brewers go, this is good. I don't want to import it anymore. I want to make it because I don't want to pay tax and I want to make a profit. They make it and realise they can export it. And it starts travelling along the area that we met in the Middle Ages, we know as the the Hanseatic League. It starts going north, south, east, west. It comes across into Flanders. And every time this hopped version turns up, everybody realises not only does it taste good, it keeps well and keeping well means you can export it. And Mm. export is cash. Um, ale is fine if you're making something just for consumption in your town. Beer is great if you want to create trade. I mean, it's not. It is. It is still. I mean, that it does travel fast, but there's still a lot of regional variation in drinks, mm. even into the sort of 18th century. That sort oh, of places yeah. in the West Country would still probably favour cider, and um, yeah, some places it was slower. So you've you described the ingredients fine. Mm. So how do you go about sourcing, for example? 16th century yeast what what clues were you able to to use or maybe other people's work or you know how how did you get out that information or if you and if you couldn't find one what was kind of your proxy well the yeast we we worked we went straight to working with microbiologists who sort of traced it back through you know genome sequencing and that to look for sort of an ancestor of 
earliest yeast and then brought it back to life in a lab and did some tests to find the one that worked best mm. for us so we were quite limited in terms of what we could what we could use for that it was more working with banks that preserve you know ancient yeasts and then with the sort of know-how and the skill of the of the microbiologists to, to bring that back to life some of the other things were actually much harder to, to source the hops for example took took us three years to get hold oh, really? of really suitable hops See, that that was much wow. more because there were more options i suppose it was much more research intensive because we we sort of sourced what we wanted to use which was a again a living ancestor of flemish hops which are what were used in in 16th century irish beer and then discovered that the candidate that we wanted to use there was only five plants in the whole uk and none anywhere else um, and <laughs> so we had to literally grow it over over three years each harvest we had to sort of harvest it and freeze it there was it was in various people's freezers we only needed three pounds in in total but it took us that long to to get it and again climate change that really hot summer that just killed mm. off the whole crop so that was back to we were literally counting ounces at that stage to get to um, scrubbling around in the ground scrubbling for... around <laughs> trying to find and then sort of trying to find a backup a backup um hop something again quite close to that um, so that took that took a long time. And even the grains, I mean, we couldn't use modern barley because modern barleys are very different to 16th century barleys, which were land race barleys and grew differently depending on on your farm or your your location. The closest we could get was bear growing on Orkney. And so we developed a collaboration with the Agronomy Institute there who supplied us with with bear for, oh, that's uh, for great, the project though, isn't it? too. Yeah. So we had a lot of support from um, growers, um, you know, artisan farmers or scientists working with crops and interested in sort of the sustainability of, of ancient um, cereals and that too. So yeah, it was, uh, it was quite challenging though overall to, to, to pull all that together. Didn't we lose half an acre of bear one summer and had to wait again because it blew over? We we lost we lost no the bear that we did lose some um, yeah. which we tried to we grew oats um, heritage oats but they wouldn't make malt so we we did have to use more modern oat malt because that's not the, the research on oats isn't as good as on barley so that was a non-starter. Yeah, I'd never heard of bear. In fact, I didn't even know that's how you pronounced it till you both said it. <laughs> Uh, it's probably its earliest pronunciation. Uh, if it's Old English, the last E is pronounced, so it's Bere. Bere. Um, but uh, it just means barley or barn. The, t- the two words come from the same root. Mm. So it, it it's almost called barley is, is the word sure. you'd use for and it. And presumably the word beer comes from that too. Uh, possibly, yeah. Uh, and and certainly it's the root for the room you store it in, the barn. It comes from, from beer. Ah. So they're, they're all the same word. So that's the ingredients. But what seem to be... Well, I mean, from my point of view, as somebody who's not particularly crafty or mechanically minded, <laughs> it takes me about three hours just to wire a plug, never make a brewery from 1600. I mean, that's just seemed unbelievable that it was even possible to do. A lot of it's experience. It's like any job. As you've just mentioned, wiring, you know, I can't rewire a house, so I get an electrician to do it. But I've spent my entire life rebuilding parts of kitchens and outbuildings. So you already have in your head this you know, Rolodex of craftspeople who are out there who you think, well, they could help us with that or they might put us onto the right right track of that. And so I have a, 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 I've worked for years with Coopers, Tinsmiths, Coppersmiths, Pewtersmiths, all these different people are around. So that helps 
and then it's it's a matter of finding what you need and that was uh, a lot of that was our um, researcher charlie managed to find um descriptions of the contents of the breweries the king's breweries at portsmouth right and they're they're providing the beer for the ships but it's also where a lot of things are leaving so you've, you've got suddenly you've got the list of what goes into the brewery and you've got those not just for for Henry VIII's breweries at Portsmouth, but you've got them in other places. You've then got the instructions where you have to look through and think, well, I'm going to need, if at the simplest level, I need a bowl to put that in. I need mm-hmm. a bucket to put that in. Mm-hmm. If it tells me to boil 30 gallons, then that gives me a rough idea that I need a big pot, not a little one. So so, sure. so these, thing, these things build themselves. So you, you basically go through a, a flow chart of, right, I need the water to come in, so it needs a, it needs a bucket. I need it to go into a boiler. I need it to come out and go into something called a mash tun. Well, they've mm-hmm. always been historically oak. So I found we were very, very lucky with our big tubs that the the, the grains and water sit in called a mash tun. Mm. Um, the last independent cooper in Britain up in Liverpool, Les, who's since retired since we've done this project. And no more I coopers left in Very, very few. In Britain, there's, right. there's, there's very, very few. And so when I called Les, un, unlike others who might have said, I'll make you a big bucket, I heard him down the phone going, oh, mash tun, right. It's going to have to be this thick and this tall because it's going to have hot liquid in it. Therefore, it will need to do this because of the stresses. It can't be any higher than this because it will pop its own cork. So this was a man who had 70 years of experience of making wooden tubs mm-hmm. who instantly knew what I meant and the difference between that and a bucket. And and I'm afraid we've already lost that. He's he's retired. He was he was very not keen on building them for us because he was already 75. <laughs> but he did a fantastic job. But I'm quite worried that you know if I need another one, if I need but something they... new, I'm going to have to go to America because their coopering business is is still flourishing. Right, and, and that would add another level. I did have to go to America for our measures. Most beer is measured volumetrically. All the grains are measured in bushels. Sure. So mm. you don't you don't weigh you you use this many bushels of oats this many bushels of beer and so on and so that volume is slightly different depending on the size of the object you put in there. We were talking about items that have come into a castle owned by the English, which is controlled by the crown, which suggests the size of the bushel in the 16th century because they're all different. Oh man, it's a nightmare, isn't it? Try to look at these things. <laughs> the best guess is that they're using a Winchester bushel. Fingers crossed they weren't using the Bristol one. And a Winchester bushel, which is pretty much standard in southern England and in brewing at that time, happens to be the same size as the American bushel that they used in colonial America. Oh, okay. So, so you've got I a bit of triangulation there. Yeah, kind of so go, I okay. went over to an American mm. cooper. Rather than trying to get an English guy who didn't understand what I meant, I went over to the guys at Jamestown, which is a late Tudor, early Stuart town, Went, saw the cooper and said, make me a Winchester bushel. And he just sort of grabbed the patterns off the wall because he knew what I meant. So there's a lot of it is linking wow. people together. Uh, we had to go to Portugal for the copper work. We don't have enough copper makers. There are no red smiths left in Britain. A red smith is someone who works in copper. I've never heard that <laughs> word before. Good. And so they still have hand-beaten copper industry. So 50-gallon cauldron comes up from, from Portugal. All of this is easy if you know who but it's also facilitated by having someone who wants to do it right and allows you the budget to do that yeah in fact i was going to ask about that um susan that might be more your responsibility handling budgets and things because you don't have an unlimited amount of resources and time and things like that and some of this stuff is i mean you were saying mag that this equipment oh well you, you spoke to the right people and it was kind of obvious what we had to do because mm. they, they knew their game but you know there's some very intricate wicker work 
pieces that must yes. have obviously taken a long time and time is money as well as resources. Yeah, oh yeah. No, all of this. And it was the same because of this rule that I mentioned, nothing touches the modern world. Then we even had a, a, a guy, a potter up in Murfield, historic potter, who made simple things like bowls, jugs, mugs, where you might just want to grab a, a bowl and put the yeast in it. It was a 16th century bowl with the right fabric glazes, just so that when I stand in front of audiences and talk about what we've done, you can truthfully say, we didn't let mm -hmm. it you know, go into a Tupperware box for half an hour, mm -hmm. that we kept everything. But yeah, each one of those items is a craftsman's work or craftswoman, uh, and involves their time and money. But Susan, of course, you've got lots of elements to this project. Did you have to sometimes kind of ask people to rein, rein themselves in a little bit? Yes, I think I did. <laughs> I think I might have. And I think also, to, to be fair, um, we had a, a huge amount of support from people who could have charged us a lot more. Um, for example, you, you know, workers, Mark in, in particular, um, but, you know, people that helped Mark and yeah. the, the growers, the the um, Warminster Malting who produced the malt as well. They, you know, they did do it for a very, very reasonable price because they were interested in the research um, and they wanted to they wanted to support it. So. Um, I don't think if we had had to pay full price for everything we could have ever had done, we could it would have taken the whole grant, I think, to do that. So we have to really acknowledge that we've had a huge amount of support from, from people too, yeah. Because I guess, you know, if, I don't know, you're doing something else, like, I don't know, pharmaceuticals or something, you would not have had that goodwill. <laughs> no, absolutely. Because <laughs> people are in that for the money, not for the, yeah. for the love of it. It's amazing yeah. how when you mention the word and, we're making beer, people seem to want to help you. People do. And, and, and of course, we, we have to mention the Wheeldon Downland Museum who put mm. us up and hosted the project yeah. for because um, we had to do trials, first of all. Um, then it took us. We were probably there for about three weeks, Mark, because you were going mm. up and down afterwards. Yeah, a good three weeks and a week just before. Of course, we had the wonderful COVID in the middle of it all. Yeah. Uh, just before COVID, we, you and I spent four or five days there setting up the equipment and just running it with hot water and things. So, yeah, we yeah. Uh, and again, the museum there was so fascinated. It, they gave us the building rather than having to rent it. So that that would have Fantastic. made a massive difference if yeah. we had to rent a space. And of yeah. course, what they gave us was a 16th century kitchen which we stripped out for it. So we were even getting to use a timber frame building with yeah. an earth floor. So, so they added a new dimension. They're very pleased to have been part of it. But yeah, all, all of this goodwill, everyone seemed to really want it to work and so would do their best to accommodate us yeah and we didn't obviously for health and safety reasons we couldn't allow the visiting public into sure. the room while we were there but we spoke to so many i'd say hundreds of people <laughs> over that period of time outside the door sort of peering in and explaining what we were doing and that so it was you know it was very interactive in that sense too and that we did we did give back and sort of were able to share yeah. what we were doing with with people as we did it and subsequently, subsequently, I mean, Susan and I have given countless talks and I'm about to go and do another one on this project because people want to know and they want to ask exactly the same questions you're asking, Neil. They want us mm. to go through it. I, I think we've got a couple more years of uh, touting we this do. around because people people just want to know. Yeah, I mean, the, the peer review, the, the journal article in the historical journal has been read more by the general public than by scientists or academics well that's fantastic yeah it's that's we're really very proud good. of that that it's yeah. you know it's accessible and people are enjoying it and engaging with it that's a fantastic tick box as well as as you know this engagement with people outside your field is so difficult to do and if that's what we if that's all we've done i would think we should be incredibly proud of that okay so you've been scrupulous to the nth degree with sourcing your ingredients getting the equipment using it in the right way so the big question is, what was the beer like? 
what's really disappointing is it tasted like beer, which meant we'd right. done it right. Okay, we will end, um, the, com- made, we'll end we... the conversation now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I, I think the fact that um, when we sipped it and went, oh, it tastes a bit like beer, it it mirrored one of the journal reports that Susan's team had come up where the English officers who are used to English beer said they didn't like it very much. It's a little bit sharp, a little bit sour, and that's the oats. Mm. So that means, again, when we've got the same, oh, it's a bit sour, well, that's exactly what the English said when they tasted it. So we, we'd done very well. We'd, we'd got, I, I never think of Tudor beer as being that old because I work on such different time frames. sometimes. I'm working on all sorts of things. And I think, well, it's fairly modern. I mean, we called it, called it early modern beer. And so we should be very pleased that it tasted like beer. I always describe it as tasting a lot like the pint your dad liked when people just went for a pint of bitter. It just tastes like beer. That's my reference um, It was a little tiny bit thicker. Uh, it did have that sour edge to it. It was very slightly cloudy, which is the oats as well. But it might have also been the barley, uh, which is why I'd love to have a, a, a more, a few more goes um, to do more than um, six barrels and, and cross-reference those. I'd like to. Uh, it'd be nice to do a bit more because, as I always say, when I'm, I'm teaching these things, I can teach you the process. I can't teach you the craft. And it's the craft that comes with repetition and learning your equipment, your room and so on. So the more you do something, the more it tends to come out similar each time. Mm. So we have to realise that we didn't have that many goes. We got a good product. Uh, We got the surprise. We're talking about the strength. The strength came out about where we'd hoped, about middling. This was table beer we were making. A table beer or a a middle beer is meant for drinking with your meals. It's It's your beer at table. Okay. And... We were hoping for something in what we thought of as the middling range, and it came up around five, six, seven percent, which is exactly five, yeah, five, fives and 5%. six. I think we had a six. I think on no. one, no fives, right? Yeah, we had a five. We had two. We we had in the end we did obviously we, did, we had to lose the the, the porridge. Um, <laughs> the porridge one. We had we had four. Um, so we had three Dublin Casterbury's that we tested um, mm. and those ones one of them was an outlier it, it's you know it seems to have gone wrong because the other two were fives yeah, just 4.9 and 5 percent mm. yeah, um, so, so that was good. very similar to and in, ca- in terms of calories it was very similar to a modern um, yeah. a modern beer mm. um, because we tested it we tested one um, to compare and it came up very similar to, to those yeah. ones too so we're not sure what happened with the one that didn't, um, oh, didn't ferment properly probably to do with the temperature and again it was one of the first ones we did so the brewers thought while we, it might while we were learning yeah. while we were learning mm-hmm. yeah but yeah. we were very glad that we had comparative you know we had a few and we had um we made one with just bear leaving out the mm. oats to see what the what what that would what that would look like and of course we did a control using modern to test the equipment too so yeah yeah but, we used modern ingredients in the 16th century equipment so that we'd get some sort of data line off that as well yes so, something uh, you can compare against okay yeah, well, that to, makes see, to see what the effect of the equipment might have been and of course the biggest and all of the brewers and distillers that i meet as i go around the world they're just absolutely shocked that we can do this thing with lids and buckets and things and because they are obsessed with keeping everything out mm. of everywhere uh, yeah and, and and i have to keep reminding them that they're working with 170 years of pasteur science and i'm looking at six thousand years of doing it mm. So how how pleased were you with the data and with the conclusions that you could make from it? Very pleased because, you know, what we made was, you know, it's it's a snapshot. As you say, there's a huge amount of variation. Even in what mm. we did, we got we got variation trying to do the same thing over and over. And that's important. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of other beers. But we did, you know, sort of very carefully 
examined what we were making in, in comparison to lots of other beers. And so we could position that as a sort of a, you know, a, a middling to strong beer. We know exactly the institution it came from and we know how many people were, you know, roughly how many people were drinking it. Mm. So we know that those people were drinking probably, you know, five to nine pints of this a day. So as a snapshot of, of an institution, it's, it's really very interesting. And we also know that there's a huge amount of complaint about drunkenness in the 16th century and about, um, you know, what what's what's moderate drinking and what's not and, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And I guess this as a historian, I'm interested in intoxication, and this kind of helps us to understand that a bit better, because if this is what we know is being provided by the Lord Deputy of Ireland to his servants, it's kind of sanctioned drunkenness to a certain extent. This is mm. what's what's allowed. That does make us think about what's, you know, what's not allowed or what drunkenness might mean to people in that period at a deeper level. So it just, yeah, it helps it, it helps to sort of form a better picture, I think, mm. of, what, of what, what beer meant in society. Yeah, I suppose it's got to be a trade-off somewhere because being drunk and being somebody doing work is obviously a bad thing, but then why would you do it? So it must have some other, other great benefit other than it just being something to quench your thirst when you're working. So I guess that's I guess that's what you try to get at, I suppose. That kind of the function function with it socially, physiologically. What's what's going on there? Human beings become quite quickly habitualized to alcohol. So if you drink quite a few pints a day, uh, then you need an extra few pints to to mm. achieve what you perceive as drunkenness. It doesn't mean you aren't high alcohol in your body, and you only have to go back a generation and a half to the 1970s to talk to builders and people like that who worked all morning, went to the pub, had a couple of pints with their lunch, went back to work, had a couple on the way home with their friends, mm -hmm. went home, had their dinner, went out to the pub. So the moment you start adding that up, you realise they're having five to seven pints a day. Only sure. 50 years ago, that was normal. And then on a Friday, they talk about having to go into double figures to actually feel it. So that's another thing that I'm fascinated by is that the, mm. the, the numbers are meaningless when they become habitual. And that's what Susan started to start unpicking. Well, mm. here's what was normal for the castle. That's that level, very similar to what we see in working men right through British history, Irish history. So there must be mm. an extra bit. And there's always this level where the drunken, the drunk isn't liked. So whatever whatever the habitual amount of alcohol in people's mm. system is considered right, above that, the mo they all start moaning about it and saying that's not right and it's not good and it's not godly. Mm -hmm. Well, we've all been on both sides of that. We? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drinking for work seems to be okay as long as you don't get drunk. That's you know, yeah. and you know, don't don't lose your senses and don't lose your reason. Drinking purposefully to get drunk or to, to with the intent of getting drunk isn't isn't liked so it's it seems to be this really really fine line and it's not quite clear you know mm. what 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 but I, I'm also really interested in this idea of habituation because we don't really know even still how it's metabolized or how much energy it does provide but what happens if the if an army is you know a ration for an Elizabethan soldier's eight pints a day? But what happens when that runs out? And that happens a lot during war, especially mm -hmm. in the late 16th, 17th century, when you can't get them those supplies. That I mean, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Do they get angrier or you know, <laughs> or, or hungrier or what? You know, yeah. yeah so that's uh, there's lots less of effective, don't more effective. Mm. Susan, what else is there for the food cult project? Is there anything uh, about to be published? 
Yeah, we have. We've got a few. We've had a few other recent articles. We had one called Food and Power in Historical Journal as well, which looks in sort of a lot of detail at those household accounts and the trends that they can show in terms of changes in religious practices and so the social meaning of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I published in the in Food and History Journal on the sort of metaphorical significance or the symbolic meaning of food in Gaelic Ireland. Um, and Charlie and I are working on a book at the moment on the, the sort of the meanings of, of food. Each chapter is based on a particular food stuff and sort of a really deep and look at those foods and what Ooh. they mean in terms of ideas around them and also what people were eating. So, um, but of course, the rest of the team then are there'll be papers on the isotope um, study and on the lipid analysis of pots and on the big archaeological database and on animals as well. So we're at the stage where lots of our results are coming in now and we're working together to try and draw those together in various ways to, mm. um, again, again, the whole point is that they're not just standalone work packages, but all the disciplines try and work with each other to interpret them. Yes. I mean, it's so fantastic that you managed to do this. I mean, it's almost the amount of work is almost sprawling. There's just so much stuff going on. I don't envy you having to try and tie that all together. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be quite a task. Yeah. I think it'll take it'll take a lot longer than the end of the project to do that, really, because mm. it is... Uh, it's, uh, but we're lucky in that we did. We have completed all of the work packages that we were supposed to. Everything's been done to some extent, even with COVID. Um, so you know, yeah, as you say, it's just going to be trying to tie it together and, and keep the writing up now and get this get get more stuff out there. Oh well, you'll have to come on and let us know when some of those things have been tied together and you got a got a bigger picture. You'd be very welcome to come to come back yeah, on. We'd love to do that. Thank you, Susan and Mark. Don't forget to check out the show notes to find links to the Food Cult Project website and that excellent paper of theirs. Really worth checking out and I cannot wait to check in with the Food Cult Project again. It's so interesting and so unique, I urge you to check out the website. I've left links to Susan's Twitter handle and Mark's website should you want to find out more about them or follow them. And remember, send any questions, comments, queries or anything else that could appear on the postback episode to me via email or any of my social media accounts. If you didn't note it down, they're in the show notes too. Now let's talk Easter eggs. There are four Easter eggs this week. There's the uncut chat about misconceptions surrounding beer. I had to cut it about in half for it to fit to time, so there's quite a lot more stuff there, including how to use an egg to measure alcohol content. There's another Easter egg about what happened when the hops got lost. The third one is about, well, how to read old recipes and by, through practice, rules of thumb sort of emerge. And the last one is about the spirits that were made from those beers. So loads this week. Enjoy. To access these, you need to become a subscriber. You get quite a few things. There's all the Easter eggs from the previous seasons of the podcast so far. There's bonus episodes. There's a bonus mini season. There's premium blog content. And you'll receive a monthly newsletter. So if you want to do that or to make a donation, just a one-off one to the running of the podcast and blogs, visit britishfoodhistory.com and click on the support the blog and podcast tab. And thanks to everyone who's donated and subscribed. Also, a new blog post has just appeared. 
on British food history. It's part of my occasional Forgotten Foods series. This time, it's porpoise as food in the Middle Ages. There's a link to that in the show notes too, if you want to read that. But, off I go. Have a fantastic week, and I shall be back soon with a new episode of the British Food History Podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>